This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today are Joe Harmon and Phil Walker. It's a slightly different episode this week. First up, a chat with Sam Billings and Joe Denley with just over a week to go until the start of the county championship season. They talk about how winters have changed for county players over the years and how players attempt to grapple with all the opportunities they have in front of them. Uh, Sam was particularly interesting on some of the decisions he's made this winter choosing to play in the Pakistan Super League over England's tour of Bangladesh and then playing in the county championship over the IPL. Anyway, here is that chat with Billings and Denley. Hello and welcome to a special bonus chat for the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. On last week's show, we promised a chat with uh, two former KKR boys. So here I am at Kent with Sam Billings and Joe Denley at the start of the season. First of all, Sam, have you had time to process that mad PSL final? Just about, I think. I got back at the beginning of the week and, um, yeah, amazing experience to be a part of the whole competition as a whole. But, um, yeah, that final, what a great advert for T20 cricket, but also the PSL and uh, probably should have been a little bit more comfortable than it ended up being. But, uh, yeah, like I said, what a game of cricket. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, you, you've always had a reputation for being energetic behind the stumps, but I think you broke all sort of decibel records during did that I, game. Yeah. Did I? Um, oh, well, I was trying to calm people down. <laughs> I was one of the quiet ones in our team. Anyway, so. um, got to ask about Shaheen's in reinvention as, a, as one of the best all-rounders in the world. Um, strolls out, scores a 15-ball 44 in the final. Like, how, how did that happen? And what were people's reaction when he first said, know what, guys, I want to bat six? I, I'm going to sound really bad here and, and try and take a little bit of credit. But I got out, I was in the dressing room and he started kind of getting his pads on. The left arm spinner was on and they were going to start bowling. They would lost, I think, three wickets to spin. And um, generally, obviously, we talk about matchups now. And in my head, I said to him, well, why don't you go out, try and slog this left arm spinner, left hand bat? So this is the first time it happened or in the final? In the final. Yeah. And... Um, He's like, I frantically got his pads on or whatever. And then the wicket went down and he just marched out. David Visa was very disappointed. <laughs> and um, yeah, said straight out. But then he ended up just kind of blocking and getting off strike. Yeah. So my thinking was slightly different. And then he just, you know, took down everyone who bowled to him after a couple of balls. So incredible batting and uh, yeah, really changed the game. If we're honest, probably the, the difference in the whole game. Yeah. Joe, it's nearly 20 years since your first full season at Kent. I looked on your cooking for a profile today. Uh, April 2004 is when it all began. Um, how much has pre-season changed over the course of 20 years? Oh, cool. You're testing my memory there. Um, look, I don't think in terms of your your planning and everything like that is still very similar. Um, the times in which we're playing are, are obviously a bit different. Um, you know, pre-season, April the 2nd, I think you said there, um, you know, our pre-season started few weeks ago now uh, and our first Champo games on the 6th of April so um, obviously to allow us to get the amount of cricket we've got 
uh, in our schedule at the minute. Um, timings have to change, but um, yeah, not too different in terms of preparation and stuff like that. You, you obviously want to get outdoors as much as you can. If you have the budget, you try and get away and play some cricket because um, you know what the weather can be like in sort of March, April time. Um, but yeah, in terms of um, how you prepare, I don't think it's too too different. Mm. I guess more with just people being all over the world. Like as, as a senior player and as a captain, how hard is it keeping track? Are you keeping track with people? Like, do you know that Fred Clarkson's playing an ODR yesterday, for example? Like, do you have a WhatsApp group keeping track of how everyone's going? What's it What's it like kind of keeping in touch over the winter? Yeah, we have our, our WhatsApp groups and yeah, we try and stay in touch as much as we can and and follow the lads wherever they are in the world. Uh, as we know, there's, there's so many different competitions going on in the winter and... Um, you know, we've got some some quality players that go and play in those competitions. And I think it's a credit to the county that we do have so many players um, participating in these these competitions. Um, yeah, we, we always try and stay in touch. And like you say, Freddie's away playing for his beloved uh, Netherlands, which he, he loves to do. Um, uh, but I'm sure he's looking forward to getting back with us. And, and hopefully, um, you never know bowling with a red jukes ball as well how much do you talk to young players about the opportunities because that's something that's obviously changed quite a lot and it can change quite quickly for a player a player can have one really good blast season and then suddenly so many opportunities that didn't previously previously exist present themselves is that something you actively try and talk to the the players about yeah i've spent a lot of time with jordan cox over the last month or so and uh he's the perfect example for that i I suppose at 22 years old the world at his feet really um and it's combining the fact, yeah, you've got to have an incredible work ethic and, and consistency in terms of playing cricket, but there also has to be a balance to it as well. Um, I was probably a bit of a, a guinea pig, I suppose, at the start of it in terms of I, I, I've learned a lot that I've done too much without playing too much cricket and trying um, to go to too many too many things. Um, and, and that's the challenge, actually, is overdoing it as, as much as not um, doing anything at all. Mm. So um, it's amazing, the opportunities as a, as a young player now. It really is incredible. You don't actually have to play for England to travel the world anymore. That used to be the case. Um, that, that was the real main, um, main way of traveling, I suppose. Mm. Um, yeah, incredible time to be a young cricketer. Sorry, I'll just to go back to your first question about the schedule and everything like that. I think that's probably one of the biggest differences. Um, sort of back when I started during the winters, you'd probably find another line of work or go and you know um, enroll in a um, some sort of education somewhere else, um, or go overseas and play great cricket in Australia, for example. I did that for a, a few times, but the opportunity now with all these competitions. Um, preparation i suppose in that sense is a lot different mm. um we have you know guys scattered all over the world playing in these franchise leagues um it's not all about focus on red ball cricket um in pre-season um uh, and and like sam touched on there you have to be wary as well of of guys coming back that have played a lot of cricket um that potentially don't need to to train outdoors for example and and, and hit the amount of balls that some guys would need to um, that have been stuck around indoors all, all mm. winter. So um, I suppose it's a balancing act, as Sam touched on as well, um, about where players have been and where, what they've been playing. Mm. At one point, sorry to interject, but at one point we had two people here and for two months. Um, so one guy was rehabbing, the other one didn't want to go away. So everyone else was playing cricket at, at one point, um, either in Dubai or South Africa, um, all over the place, great cricket in Australia. So... 
that's it's amazing really out of a 20 23 man squad uh, only and only two people were here so it's, it's changed dramatically and it, it's great um the value you even get as a young player, the best thing I ever did was go to Penrith and play a, play a winter, well, our winter, um, a full year of, of grade cricket in Sydney. And that was, that kind of in terms of my development, um, not only as a cricketer, but also as a bloke, you had to grow up overnight, mm. um, fending for yourself and in uh, Australia. And yeah, it's brilliant. It's not just the franchise stuff. Um, you get value out of kind of all all cricket. Mm. I guess with all those decisions, you don't know what's going to happen when you when you take one. So you, you get a contract, you don't know if you're going to play. Butch was saying on last week's pod that people probably don't appreciate how hard it is for players nowadays when you've got all these opportunities. Do you think that? Do you think that's fair enough? Hard, hard in what way? Because you've also got short. You've also got short careers. So from a financial point of view, you want to take the opportunities. You don't know what happens if you say no to an opportunity potentially as well. Like, does that mean you won't get asked again? Like, is that, I mean, you you, you said you didn't want to go to the IPL this year to focus well, on Bangladesh. Yeah. Um, what was going through your mind when you're making those decisions? Yeah, uh, quite a bit to unpick there. So it really, it really has changed dramatically. I, I think for a period of probably eight years, I was England's best paid water boy probably. And, um, played sporadically throughout that period and missed out on various opportunities. And I felt the best opportunity to play consistent cricket was to go to the Pakistan Super League uh, instead of going to Bangladesh. That's a great example of where the game's changed. You don't have to play for England as a fringe player now. You can go to a top quality tournament, one of the best in the world and and play every game. So uh, financially, you're better off in in that way as well. Um, And it's not all about that, but it certainly does come into... Um, the the reckoning and the thinking now so mm. because I think it's all about fair value everyone you know you're not going to get paid what Harry Brook does or or Ben Stokes but getting paid fair value um, and what that represents in terms of uh, those contracts yeah is 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 great for the modern day cricketer mm. from a from a mental point of view it's tough not playing like it, it really does wear you down and and Joe's experienced it as well it is we're paid to play cricket. We we want to play cricket. We're competitive beings. And um, whenever you're not doing that and you're in the nets the whole time, trying, you're working, you're nuts off to try and get in the team. Um, it can be really um, mentally tough at, at times. So, yeah, it's not always, it looks great, obviously, on, on Instagram where you're playing all these or you're a part of all these different franchises and you're getting paid well. But actually... In terms of value and fulfilment, um, there has to be an element to that um, for each individual. And what you get, what, what that represents uh, is, is completely individual. For me, playing for Kent is always uh, fulfilling. And test cricket was the biggest fulfilling experience I've, I've experienced. So um, it's just managing all of these different things. And you've got to have really good people. So I'm going to keep on blabbering on. But having really good people around young players now is so important. Not not just guys who tell you how great you are when you've you've had one good knock. It's balancing your schedule out consistently, um, keeping your feet on the ground, and and realizing you're not as good as you think you are, and you're not as bad as you think you are, because mm. it's such an up and down career to be a part of. So, um, yeah, we're going to see it become more like football, I think. But from an agency perspective, I'm really. Um, so, what do you mean by that becoming more like football? In terms of, I think there'll be more people seeing dollar signs when it comes to a player. Yeah. You'll see them as assets and 
I think that's really dangerous um, from a young player's perspective and you get someone promising you the world when actually it comes down to putting the work in but also yeah just having really good people around you I, I can't stress that enough um, you see Stokes is a great example I mean how much did did he pay respect to um, to Neil Fairbrother in his documentary and having such a great person like Neil around him throughout those tough times, I mean, that's an extreme. But I, I think that's so important for mm. each young player. Mm. Um, I'm going to pick you up on you talked about fulfilment. Um, part of the, the prep that Kent give all the journalists when they come today is a list of all the teams that you've, you've always played for. And there, there, there's a long list for both of you. Um, and the kind of what, for, for this winter, you guys have both had, when you've played franchise cricket, you've played pretty much a full competition. I sometimes wonder when you see players go to a league for two games, how fulfilling is that? Do you really appreciate when you come back to Kent, you've got a full season ahead of you, that that is something that's just more satisfying from a professional point of view? Yeah, it's, um, it's tricky. I, I think it's it, a lot of it depends on where you are in your career you know we, we all know the situation with Bilbo not going to the IPL wants to play more cricket um, potentially you know test cricket um, as a carrot there as well uh, someone like Jordan Cox I think at the start of his career I think it's amazing that he's going to these franchise leagues not necessarily playing but being around what Sam said being around great people great players some of the best players in the world uh, and learning off them um, I think is a is a real positive for him in, at his stage of his career, um, and yeah, for someone like myself, um, I have to be careful how much I play now because I've experienced burnout. I, I went to the IPL and sat on the bench for pretty much the whole competition. Got given a game near the end. I was pretty much checked out. I had one foot on the plane and um, got a first baller from Ishan Sharma, um, <laughs> and never been back since. But um, yeah, look, it is a tricky one, but I think it really depends on where you are in your career. And um, I'd certainly encourage younger players to go and hopefully be involved in these competitions, be around um, top players, learn off them. Um, and I think as well, if you aren't playing and, and you're a young guy, it, it gives you that more hunger sort of when they come back to Kent, they're desperate to get get out and start playing. Um, and and that's, a, that's a positive for us. And Hmm. And like you say, as Sam says, as long as he's got good people around him, um, and he and he understands that, then then I think it's great for him. Someone like a Jordan Cox is 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 a brilliant talent. We all know the talent he possesses in all three formats as well. And uh, as Joe said, it's brilliant at this stage of his career to just lap it up, lap the experiences up, whether you're playing or not, actually the value you get just from being around in the nets every single day, facing Rashid Khan in the nets. I mean what a great experience that is. Mm. Okay, how am I going to play him when I play him in the summer at the 100? Or, you you know, you, you it fa it's impossible not to fast forward your development. So I, I experienced that. I got to the stage where I, I just didn't, I was still around those environments, but wasn't getting that consistent game time. Mm. And so probably plateaued. So as long as that's not happening, as, as Joe said, at 27, 28, when you're coming into your peak years where you really want to um, just score a weight of runs, whatever the format, um, it, it's just whatever's right at that point in time mm. in, in your career. Focusing on the English summer now, uh, I know Sam's answered this question, so I'll go to Joe first. Is there too much cricket in the English county season? Um, go on, stand on the fence like I am. <laughs> no, I, I think, yeah, it, it's, it's becoming more... Um, it's becoming harder, uh, should I say, for, for counties to put up competitive teams week in, week out. Um, 
with with the current schedule i believe yeah um there's a, a real overload i think especially for the bowlers um you know it's tough for a county like us who what's our squad 21 22 um and then you look at someone like a surrey who has could probably field two teams um you know there's a bit of a um a distance there in terms of being able to field a competitive team in, in every single game. You, you want, we want to be competing for, for all the trophies. Of course we do. Um, but is that realistic? And with the current schedule and our current squad? No, I don't think so. Hmm. So uh, does that answer that? I yeah, think, no, it yeah, does. Sam, what do you, what do you think? I, I think globally there's too much cricket and too much cricket that um, doesn't have meaning. So we, we're seeing right now the bilateral series are kind of dwindling in in terms of importance we all know the reasons obviously with covid and the backlog of course but there has to be a meeting where everyone just says right enough is enough to sit down and work out from a franchise perspective as well as um internationally work out what's best for the game so we prolong that and and everyone benefits uh from a kind of streamlined schedule and then that will filter obviously down into the domestic structure um I played in the Big Bash this year when you don't have, you've got their premier domestic competition and you don't have most of the Australian players even contracted to each of the franchises mm. is mind boggling to me. Um, even from a marketing perspective, like Steve Smith came in, smashed a hundred at the end and you saw the impact that had on the whole country and also the competition, the credibility went through the roof. Um, Steve loved it because he wanted to play T um, T20 cricket, but Everyone benefits from that, but there has to be that we have it with the 100 as well. You've got to have your best players playing consistently in the 100, all of your international players. Um, but streamlining it now, the America competition, you've got uh, CPL cutting across. There has to be communication because it doesn't benefit the CPL. It doesn't benefit the USA comp cutting across our competitions and, and, and likewise over the winter as well. So kind of talking not only about county cricket but it's, it's everything it's mm. all encompassing right now do you fancy a gig in administration when when your playing career comes to an end <laughs> uh, we'll have to wait and see uh, Keezy I've always looked up to from a captaincy point of view and you see the skills that he took from captaincy into the role he's he's doing now um, I mean he's doing incredibly well and um, you guys obviously know him really well did you think he'd do something like that when he, when he called it a day from, from playing? I'm not surprised how well he's going, yeah. but also the skill set he's got fits perfectly because he's a DOC and 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 just sees things before before it happens. So um, I'm not surprised how well he's gone, but um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have expected to see him in a suit, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's doing brilliantly. Yeah. Um, and then just on... I guess the, the year ahead as Kent's got a really exciting squad you mentioned Jules and Cox but there are loads of really young players who are very exciting um, at the moment as senior players do you enjoy that responsibility to working with those players and kind of um, nurture them I guess through through a summer yeah absolutely I think um, you know I was lucky enough when I first started we had a fantastic squad you've already touched on there Rob Key was was captain our coach Matt Walker was there um, we had some fantastic South African players Martin Van Yarsfeld, Um and they were were very good to me growing up so um, so naturally I think um, you, there's, a, there's an ownership there to to, to take on that role and um, try and you know be a an ear for listening for you know if they've got any problems or 
uh, offering a bit of advice here and there of course um you know i think it's a a duty of care that we have to to try and share our experiences and uh, and try and help them along their journey as well mm. do you enjoy that aspect of, of the captaincy yeah a huge amount in terms of seeing people develop um as men but also as cricketers um you see the development people get rapidly and zach's zach's a great example um kind of when i took over the captaincy you saw the potential to grow uh for him and and i see him as a future leader as well whether it's here or england or and that's always been in the back of your mind where you see someone and you think they've got real quality that just needs to be nurtured in the right direction mm. i'm not i'm not so saying you're taking credit for <laughs> zach no, not oh. at all. I'm just saying, <laughs> just, uh, just promotion. He's got the skills. He's got the skills. But we're we're very lucky. Like um, Joe, as a senior player, is in terms of his personality, the calming personality he has is so key to have around um, the dressing room uh, as senior players. As he alluded to, I was very lucky with the opportunities that Rob Key gave me as as a as a player coming through and. Having that senior player, whether it's Joe, myself, um, whoever it is, having that senior player who's going to hold you accountable and still push you, but you know that they have the best interests at heart um, is invaluable. And, mm. and that's what you see a real, um, that's where you see development is mm. as long as you have those characters in the dressing room. And, and Joe is absolutely one of those guys that um, I not only lean on, but certainly a lot of other people do. So uh, everyone gets so excited about youth and and the exuberance of youth and you need that um but you have to have that experience and the know-how in and around that to really complement and and to produce a winning team hmm. um, well fascinating stuff uh thanks both for your time and best of luck with the start of the season Thanks Thank you very much. Cheers. Joe, what's your moment of the week? Um, so mine came from the Women's Premier League Eliminator uh, and it was uh, Mumbai Indians, Izzy Wong taking the first hat-trick in the tournament. It was just a brilliant, brilliant moment to watch live. Uh, first one, full bunger on leg stump, gets caught on the deep, got a bit lucky there. But after that, there was a pinpoint leg stump, Yorker. And then the third one was our England teammate, Sophie Eccleston, castled, and then just kind of wild scenes of, of jubilation. And it's, yeah, it was a special moment for a, a young cricketer who's who's moving along very quickly. She then took uh, three more in the final, so seven across the eliminator in the final, uh, leading wicket taker among seamers in the tournament. So a brilliant tournament for a young player who's had a bit of opportunity with England, not loads, done pretty well, um, but didn't make the T20 World Cup squad um, most recently. Uh, so she's kind of moved up a level, but it, it did get me to thinking. I've mentioned it on the pod a couple of times, but back in 2020, we did the 19 most exciting teenagers in the UK, male and female. Uh, a 15-year-old Alice Capsey was in there. Lauren Bell was in there. Um, and Izzy Wong was another name who, who came up 17 at the time. Uh, I'd not heard of her name at the start of the piece, but I was asking around and her name kept cropping up. And I chatted to Paul Greetham, who's Warwickshire's elite cricket development manager. And it was clear he was really excited at the time. He recalled meeting Izzy for the first time, aged, I think, 12, he said. Uh, and her telling him, I'm going to be the fastest female English bowler of all, of all time. I interviewed her a year later. She told me exactly the same thing pretty much straight away as well. And she, and that kind of sums her up. She, she's really bright, but she also understands, I think, a bit of self-promotion. And it, it does feel like she really embodies where the women's game is, is going now. And I remember speaking to Heather Knight a few years ago, and she talked about the sense of gratitude that players of her generation 
had in terms of the opportunities they were afforded that that group who got the first professional contracts in 2014 because they'd seen players like Charlotte Edwards Claire Taylor that generation and generations before that how hard they'd had to work for every single opportunity even paying for their own kit paying for their own way so there's that sense from Heather's lot they were so grateful to actually have progressed from that point now with Izzy Wong and her generation I, I just there isn't that sense of gratitude and, and nor should there be because the women's game has absolutely proved its worth quite literally in the sense that you know it's a 95 million broadcast deal that they've done for the WPL and now they're reaping the benefits and enjoying that stage and the platform to perform and, and no one more than someone like Izzy Wong who is you know yeah charismatic she's a born performer and now she's playing best against best uh, in a lucrative tournament in front of busy stadiums and and this is kind of what she was born for and it, and it's great to see even that three years so much has changed from speaking to her as, as just a kid coming through with these big dreams and actually now they're all coming to fruition mm. um she clearly really enjoys the big moment as well That's i mean it. part of how amazing the, the hat trick ball was 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 the noise of the crowd was incredible like this mumbai indians playing in mumbai full house getting so behind this brand new team also Firstly, she made the first 11 for that first game, which wasn't a stick on by any means. And do you remember what she did to her first ball? First ball in the, in the it WPL? She did it for six. Yeah. Um, six from one. That's quite a way to announce yourself. She, you used the word charismatic, Joe. She is you know, devilishly charismatic and, and knows it. And she plays her cricket as an extension of that. There is a, a tumbling amount of personality that's just coming out of her all the time when she plays. Uh, and that takes you a long way in the game. So much of cricket is about um, convincing the the opponents that you fancy it more than they do and that you back yourself a bit more than they do and burying whatever self-doubts you've got in the moment, suppressing them uh, and eliminating them. And she does that as naturally as any young cricketer around. Uh, and that's what gets her into that franchise in the first place. Obviously, Charlotte Edwards being the overseer helps. Um, but then she suddenly ends up opening the bowling and batting six for Mumbai Indians women's team. Uh, and as you say, Joe, you know, th- two or three years ago, she was talking to us uh, and was just this sort of sprightly voice, you know, that was that was very good, as you say, at self-promotion. And now she's right in the vanguard of it, bending cricket matches to her will. Now, if you look at the seven wickets she took in isolation across the semi and the final, as Mumbai won the thing, Four full tosses, was four, it? In the, four full, I think. Well, two full tosses in the, in the final in the first over, having gone for 10 from two for, from her first two deliveries. Verma took her apart. Uh, but then she just has this innate ability. It's, it's, the, it's what both of them used to have, you know, that you drag one down and that would be the most dangerous ball you're going to bowl. And, and she has that in her because there's so much going on around her. She's, a, she's one of these box office cricketers and... And if the I, the WPL, uh, I keep wanting to call it the IPL, the WPL has, has demonstrated, paraded one big obvious point. Again, it's just how how box office and how watchable so many of these female cricketers are now. Mm. I think for, for both Wong and Capsi, it almost feels like they've been let loose in the tournament in a way that they haven't really for England yet. And I think it's partly to do with how much quality there is around them and their teams. Whereas they almost have to fulfil roles that senior players 
fulfil when they're playing for England. You know, the, the bowling attack that Wong's part of is is excellent, full of superstars around her, which she doesn't quite have for England. She's got established internationals, but not global superstars who demand a spot in these teams. And same with Capsi, that she's in a batting line that is so good, she can, I guess, play in her more natural way. Going on to the final, Mumbai Indians uh, won it. Nat Siver Brunt hit 60 not out in the final. Hayley Matthews took three for five from her four overs of the ball. Uh, she had an exceptional tournament after a comparatively quiet couple of years in international cricket. And I think she fits a similar build to Captain Wong in terms of being around better players has brought more out of Oh, massively. Her. I mean, particularly for Matthews, that's not that's not a good West Indies side that she's, she's part of now. Obviously, they've had some success previously, but not now. And yeah, she just looks like she's been massively freed up. And especially as a as a batter, she she often plays quite sedately for West Indies. But for my Indians, she can come out and just hit it because she's got so much more support around her. I, I think just purely aesthetically, her and Harman, Harman Preet, and I guess Mandala as well as, as a sort of wistful old lefty style. But Harman Preet and, and Matthews, to me, are the most watchable of, of this this current crop. Uh, Matthews in particular, I mean, obviously she, she played brilliantly in that T20 tournament that West Indies won. But since then, I haven't paid that much attention to her because she had gone off the boil, and there was there's clearly a sort of there's a vibe issue around the West Indies women's team. But seeing her, you know, crack on open open up for Mumbai in the last few weeks, she's stunning to watch. And we talk about Wong having a pretty good um, eliminator and final. Natsiva Brunt also had a pretty good eliminator and final. She hit seventy two not out in the eliminator and sixty not out in the final, continuing her excellent, particularly excellent record in the really big games. Um, Joe, you spoke to her dad uh, for the upcoming I magazine. I spoke to her and her dad, yeah. Um, this is for the series I've been doing called uh, Procreation, all about how the best cricketers have become the best cricketers, basically. Um, yeah, and I chatted to her dad, Richard, who was heading out to Mumbai a few days after we talked to go and to go and watch his daughter and I saw him in the footage jumping up and down with a Mumbai Indian shirt on obviously enjoying it um, and it was a really interesting I mean she's had a very unusual route to uh, to get to where she is I mean literally geographically she's had a very odd route and that she was born in Tokyo and then spent time in uh, Poland and Holland and didn't really discover cricket until quite late she played a lot of other sports she was a good tennis player really good football player who was on the on the development books at Chelsea so there was no you know, when I was, the last one I did was Joe Root, for instance, it's pretty clear from a very young age that he was going to be a cricketer. That wasn't true of of, um, of Nat until she was probably 16, 17, just because she had so many other options. Um, and yeah, it, it was, a, it, I really liked doing these pieces. I like speaking to the parents of, of players. It's always interesting. And he's, Richard, I think, Nat described him as uh, her biggest fan and also perhaps her harshest critic, apart from herself. Uh, in that he had, he sounds quite quite demanding. He's not uh, afraid to put in the family WhatsApp group that she shouldn't have played that shot at that particular time, which she said her, her brother and sister usually back her up and say, "Come on, Dad, leave it." And then I thought, that she's she's really she's great to talk to, very sort of understated, but very funny. And she said, "I said to Dad the other day, like all the things he's telling me, then they don't match up with the John Lewis ethos. Like he he obviously is the dad is saying, kind of get your head down, and and John Lewis is saying." you got to go out and play your shots. And she's like, so I'm now like, do I, do I get John to try and convince my dad? <laughs> how, how, do, how do we actually kind of get, take, take this forward? Because they're not on the same page at the moment. Uh, all said with a, with a smile. Uh, and she's just in stunning form at the moment. And, and, and like you said, she had a little blip mid-tournament when actually there wasn't much to play for because Mumbai Indians were already through. 
And then when it really mattered, she steps up again as, as she generally does for England. Her World, her World Cup record is, is brilliant for England. And um, if she had a bit more support around her, she'd have a, a second World Cup winner's medal uh, to go with the first from 2017. She, she's the best player in the world. Um, best all-round female cricketer in the world now, I think. Um, with the numbers and the, the big moments now to back it up. Now, this final that we've just seen and the semi that leads into it this is even more than any of the men's IPL finals this is this epitomizes the the era of of women's cricket this encapsulates where the women's cricket's got to I think and you just run along those 11s they are star studied there's not three or four good players maybe in their mid to late you know early to mid 30s and seven Indian cricketers this is just like a world a series of world 11s and she come the crunch just as you saw in an England shirt she's she's head and shoulders above the rest and I think what's happened to her that Heather Knight said something to to me a couple of years ago about her and she said the thing with Natalie Siver as she was then is that she's so good but she doesn't realize why and you've interviewed her right a couple of times and she she does have this sort of slight very nice way about her but it's slightly diffident slightly standoffish a little bit bemused by her own brilliance almost and slightly conscious of parading it or declaring her brilliance and I think you've sometimes seen that from her in her career and that line from Heather sort of alludes to that I think and when I've interviewed her before I mean she gave me a, a great line a couple of years ago when I've got it written down here hold on I asked her is she like ambling towards becoming the best cricketer on the planet? And she said, well, I'd like, I think I could be, and I'd like to be, but I'm not, not there yet. And, it, and it's a very Nat Siver-like line. Um, it's sort of full of focus, but also slightly relaxed. And well, if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And I think she's been like that. She's also been bored of T20 cricket. And she said this to me herself when I interviewed her last year. And the one-track nature of it, she said she hadn't got her right rhythm yet in T20 cricket. Um, and I think a lot of it, simply, it's just a little bit beneath her. Going out and clearing your front leg for another domestic game or a 100 game, when you're that good, I think it's just a little bit underwhelming for her. But when you have to go and play and the world's watching you and you're creating a, a completely new uh, overlaid narrative about women's cricket and th- that game yesterday is as big as, as it's ever been. The biggest, obviously, domestic game you've ever seen in women's cricket. But it's, it's, it's opening up a whole new world for them. It doesn't surprise me that with that extra uh, motivation, that extra clarity, that, that she becomes, she becomes the, the key player in those, two, in those two games. It doesn't surprise me at all. Well, she's, she said to me in the interview I just did that she's enjoying her cricket more than she ever has done, which is great to hear because it was only last September that she took a break from the game um, through kind of uh, to mentally refresh and said it would all become a bit much and she talked about that being very much a product of the end of the the bubble period that had really kind of drained her um, and talking to a team psychologist and again it, it's one of those you know often cricket throws us up incredibly simple messages that sound quite obvious but basically just to go out there and enjoy it and be less kind of results focused again very much like the kind of Stokes McCullum stuff that we're we're hearing now just to go out and kind of enjoy it and play with freedom and that she said it's timed really nicely with the way that John Lewis wants this England side to play. And I think she just carried that on in this in this tournament and is feeling less burdened by it. And as a result, 
is enjoying it a lot more and, and playing her very best cricket. Mm. Now, now the tournament's finished, how do you reflect on it, Phil? Comparing it to what the top franchise cricket is in men's, in the men's game compared to top international men's cricket, it just feels like a bigger deal. It's In men's cricket, you, you've got this history of enormous turnouts to uh, games between the best teams in the world. In women's cricket, you haven't had that as much. You had the World Cup final at the MCG. You have the business ends of World Cups where you get loads of people in. But you don't regularly, regularly get atmospheres like you get not just in the IPL, women's IPL final. It was throughout the whole competition, the atmosphere is brilliant. Is it possible that the women's game goes quite differently to the men's game in terms of how valued top franchise cricket becomes in comparison to international cricket? I think absolutely. I think the, the stuff that I've watched in the last two and a half, three weeks is the most consistently quality, watchable female cricket that I've ever seen. Um, you know, any discussion of international women's cricket, obviously you have to put Australia in their own category and then the next two and a half to three teams in the next category and then the rest in the next category. What you're seeing here, uh, notwithstanding some underperformances such as RCB, you know, who have a star-studded lineup and, and and didn't click at all, but will do eventually, what you just saw week after week was quality, watchable quality in and of itself. Um, not symbolic, not great that it's happening and it might grow to something just quality sport in the here and now um i want to bring something up andrew miller you know brilliant cricket info columnist stalwart and now and writes of course for wcm he wrote uh, on the the wpl impact for the upcoming magazine and i just want to grab a line out for you when you look at mumbai indians versus up warriors and you see Matthews, Nat Brunt and Harmpreet Kaur lining up against Elisa Healy, Deepti Sharma and Sophie Eccleston. It's possible to pierce the preconceptions that the men's internationally weighted heritage has forced upon us and recognise that a league-based future could actually be the optimum vehicle for global growth for the women's game. And I see that and uh, almost con- conversely or surprisingly, but they're almost now running with this idea and overtaking the men because the landscape is not quite as garbled and not quite as um, compromised as the men's landscape is. The, the future is, is less blemished, I think, for, for, for the female game. And I don't think there'll be as much con- uh, conflict. And I don't think there'll be as much tension between your international board, your home board and your franchise cricket and so on and so on. Um, I think it can coexist more naturally than it can in the men's game. And I think ultimately, as a punter, as a fan, I'm going to want to watch that stuff just as much as I'm going to want to watch the, the international stuff and whisper it. I might even want to watch it a little bit more here and there. And, and I, I'm less conflicted saying that about the female game than I am about the male game. And yeah, Andrew goes on in that column to talk about international women's cricket perhaps being more reflecting, but more like um, international football, where the the... the the big events, the World Cups, the Euros are big events because that's when suddenly attention turns onto them. Whereas, you know, the equivalent of a bilateral series, I guess, would be, you know, the qualifying in football, which no one really cares about and is is a bit of a kind of just has to happen. It's just a means to an end. And I can I can see that. And and then he talked about as well that these tournaments, if more crop up, can actually end up benefiting the international game because you have more players from different countries playing in there. We haven't got to that point yet. This this tournament is still very much dominated by uh, Australians, 
uh, English players, obviously the local Indian players. There are a few examples and hopefully you'll get more and more of those. But that that's what sort of remains to be seen whether tournaments like this just mean the countries that have the most end up having more quality whether actually there is some sort of equity found elsewhere there was a ridiculous t20i between south africa and west indies uh so 517 runs were scored across the game which is an all-time record uh in t20 cricket beating the carnage that we saw in royal pindi a few weeks ago west indies hit 258 off 20 overs and lost Comfortably. And comfortably over, lost. Over so I, I went out at half time. <laughs> so I watched the Johnson Charles. Yeah. I watched the second half of it when so I realised what was happening. 118 off 46. Yeah. And he lost. And he lost. <laughs> Not even close. So yeah, I, I didn't even look at the result until I got in late that night. And yeah, they got, got stuffed. Although West, West Indies bowled, what, 10 wides and a couple of no balls? So they basically gave them two, two whole extra yeah. overs. Yeah, I mean, Rabada was the only bowler across the two sides to go at less than 10. Um, Mangala went for something like 50 in 18 balls Cottrell like. went for 29 off one over um, did Decott, he? yeah Decott <laughs> hit 100 off 44 Reza Hendricks 68 off 28 there's a really good piece on uh, Crick Info by Fidoz Munda she spoke to a few of the players involved in the game about why it was so high scoring so she wrote that Rabada um, as he walked off the field said that West Indies were 10 runs short <laughs> Um, <laughs> Isn't that that the the famous South Africa Australia ODI? Yeah, but, uh, but was but, it Callis who said the same? So Callis supposedly said it, but wouldn't, I don't think anyone's hundred percent sure if he did say it or not. Right? Or is it? This well, time they're, they're, they're twenty short. Or yeah. Something. <laughs> uh, Rivada says they're short, um, and Johnson Charles said it was just a combination of a really really good pitch, short boundaries. They're obviously on the high vault, so the air's a bit thinner, which apparently makes a difference. Um, and Charles said that... Well, it does make a difference. Well, I'm sure it does, but I don't understand why. I couldn't really tell it's you why. Theater, so yeah, I know that's a line, but I don't really understand how that works. But anyway... Well, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. I, don't a, I don't need a sceptic, necessarily. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a thin-air sceptic. I believe that it exists, but I can't tell you exactly why it exists. Um, that's like the whole of the world to me. But that's <laughs> science with your hands um, Anyway... Um, he also said that you can just play proper shots when the boundaries are that small and the pitch is that good. Um, so you basically players have more shots at their disposal and conditions like that. But it's, it's interesting that we're, we're seeing that record getting broken more and more regularly now. Um, who'd want to be a bowler, eh? It's, it's been quite a good ding-dong few weeks yeah, between really the two has. teams. Really I mean, West Indies have come up short in pretty much every game. I think they, they won one ODI, I think. But they've competed in all the games. Uh, they don't have enough batting yet in the test matches to compete against good bowling sides. But but they're hanging in there. There's a sort of chrysalis of a team emerging there, I think, with the West Indies. I think they've actually conducted themselves pretty well out there. Yeah, I'd like to hear um, from people who, who cover and watch West Indies cricket more closely than we do. But it's quite interesting. We were looking at kind of which countries have been giving opportunities to younger players in the world recently. West Indies basically don't have anyone, but, but other than Jaden Seals, who's obviously really good, but injured at the moment, there are very, very few young West Indians playing international cricket. So these are guys aged 23 or below. Dominic Drake's played maybe one game in the last two years at that age, but it's very, very few of them are doing that. Some of these guys who are coming in, uh, you know, we talked about Brandon King on last week. He's, he's not young. He's not young. Well, and we did, when we were doing the, the next Fab Four and we, uh, a few years ago in the magazine, mm. actually it wasn't a few years, it was a few months, wasn't it? Hard to keep track. Um, and then we picked out the next big batting thing from each country. And it was really hard to find one for West Indies because we were focusing on Red Bull here. 
Um, and I remember speaking to the guys at the Caribbean Cricket Podcast and they like, they gave a few suggestions, but none of them had any kind of record to speak of. It was all based on potential. Uh, I think we might have gone with, I think we went with Hetmeyer in the end, which was a bit of a cop-out because he doesn't really play Red Bull cricket. But we were like, you know, if he decides to give it a go and takes it seriously, then then maybe. Not that that's looking particularly promising these days, but given his relationship with the West Indies. Mm. Didn't play for him at all. No. Mm. <laughs> Elsewhere, it won't come as a huge surprise, but the poor rating given to the indoor pitch used to the third India-Australia test match has been upgraded to just below average. Why won't it come as a huge surprise, um, yes? Well, because the same thing happened to the Royal Pindy pitch. Uh, it was also given a poor rating recently. So I guess the ICC are easily swayed when, when there's pressure applied in these situations. It basically means that the venue is significantly less likely to incur a 12-month ban. If you get a poor rating, you get three demerit points. If you get five in a five-year period, that's it for a year. Um, where it's below average, only one point. I reckon the allotment at the end of my, my granddad's garden would probably still just get inadequate <laughs> if, if someone from the BCCI lent on them. My word. Um, if that is a if that is a bare, yeah that's just an adequate pitch, then what has to be a poor one really? What's the, the line? What's the expert? They said that basically for it to be poor, it needs to have even more inconsistent bounce from the start, which I think is ridiculous because it was it was shooting low on day one, maybe even first session. Anyway, to celebrate World Whiskey Day on Monday, the Wisden Shop uh, is offering. 30% off their limited edition spirits range, including the Wisdom Whiskey, Gin, and Vodka. Um, use the code SPIRITS30 to claim your discount before the offer ends. We'll leave that in the description. And the whiskey is really good. And I'm not even mm. contractually obliged to say that. Like, it's just <laughs> really good. Mm. Uh, I'm going to bring up my Joe Root um, yes. testimonial. <laughs> uh, I had a glass over New Year and was very impressed, says Joe, uh, on the 6th of January 2021. Wonderful. There you go. So, Wonderful. from the man himself, go and get a bottle of the rye. Joe, there's a new magazine out this week. It's the big county preview. There's 26 pages in the middle devoted to the, the county season. What what else is in it? We'll talk about the county championship in more detail on, ne- on next week's pod. Um, we've got some good exclusive interviews. There's the Ollie Robinson, which I believe you've already talked about in in some detail. In some detail. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> No, I, was, I haven't heard it's it. It's just the gardener went after me again last oh, did week. He? Yeah. I didn't realize. He going on about for ages after he was talking about Darren Bravo. Yeah. And his in-swingers. But, but then ended up talking about the... Give the people the, what they want. Yeah. Darren Bravo and his in-swingers. <laughs> um, so we won't talk about Robinson. Yeah, really good interview with Graham Smith by Mel Farrell. Uh, this is Graham Smith, who is uh, commissioner of the SA20 now. So he's in a very interesting position where he is... Uh, at the helm of this new franchise tournament, whilst also on the MCC World Cricket Committee trying to work out how Test Cricket has a future in this landscape. Uh, and he's kind of, I guess, pivoting and trying to work out how it all fits together. And it's it's no easy task. But he's particularly fascinating on where South African cricket is right now. And he says you know, it was kind of on its knees at, at the start of, of their summer. Um, obviously absolutely thrashed by Australia. But, you know, and people would say he would say this because he's in charge of the SA20, but he talks about the kind of the, the good vibes going back through South African cricket, um, that the tournament was really successful in its first year, um, that the national team looks in better shape, obviously convincing wins over the West Indies, uh, ODI World Cup qualification looking uh, in, in better shape. Um, and also just the fact that South African cricket, they're talking about the cricket for a while rather than admin balls ups and all the rest of it that, that comes with South African cricket 
Uh, he also told us, which I don't know, I haven't seen this elsewhere. I don't know if this is an exclusive as such, but he he told Mel that they're very much looking at doing an SA20 women's tournament next year. Uh, the T20 World Cup, Women's World Cup in South Africa was hugely successful, sold out Newlands for the final, which obviously South Africa are part of. Real good vibes there that they want to kind of pick up on and run with. Um, so it was a, a kind of combination of feeling kind of optimistic about the state of South African cricket, but still with that inevitable slight tinge of gloominess that comes with how does this all look for test cricket in the future from a guy who has captained more test matches won more test matches scored quite a lot of test match runs really cares about this thing um but still doesn't quite know like the rest of us how the future looks with all these competing um other tournaments it's quite interesting that with him and key who was in the last magazine you're two two people who you'd, you'd like to think you'd like to hope that if anyone in the world have, has a decent idea and a chance of getting people together to sort something out around Test cricket, those would be two of the people involved. But they've both kind of said that I'm not 100 sure. Well, they both said quite similar things. We need to get everyone in a room and, a, and mm. have a conversation and a dialogue. <laughs> but it's Maybe still not quite clear what that conversation. Maybe we need is. to do it. <laughs> yeah. Get get ten big names from the game. All get them to think it's a one to one interview, and then turns up it's all of them there. So I wrote this. Um, kind of inspired by the Smith thing and, and the main editorial that we've got all these big big voices talking tough, getting in rooms, round tables and <laughs> bashing tables and thrashing things out. But there's like this vagueness to the language because nobody really has, has the mm. answer yet. Um, just a nod though to the, the World Cricket Committee MCC statement of a couple of weeks ago and I think Smith is on that, but certainly he is. He yeah. is yeah, it's Ganguly, Sangakara, et al. The the if you like the new conscience of the game, you know the the, the recently retired um, new voices, uh, and they absolutely recognise that the game is reaching a tipping point and intervention is essential. So, so at least there is a sort of collective acknowledgement now, and every interview that the likes of Smith does um, is echoing this point. So. There, I think. I guess the first part is to acknowledge that this is a this is a, a deep and sort of existential problem, um, and then the second part is trying to find someone with the brain power and the, maybe the courage to actually uh, begin to plan our way through it. You know, um, not everyone is ever going to be happy at the end of this. There's going to be a lot of compromises needed, but it cannot go on as it is. It cannot mm. just be sort of splurged across. You know, this confused. You know saturated landscape mm. and for a bit of levity we've got a kind of brilliantly bonkers interview of Danny Morrison which is mm. probably everything that you'd expect if, you, if you've followed his commentary uh, and a more serious note Phil and his test test ticket prices oh. which has been going on for a few months now I think it's probably fair to say Phil's happy that, that one's that one's done yeah it was yeah. important that we did it so it was looking at test match prices for tickets in this country uh you might remember we canvassed opinion from a lot of our readers and listeners, got a, a huge response from people. Um, and I think oh, it's obviously a tricky one to navigate, but I think Phil probably gave the test match venues every opportunity to defend their prices. Some did it relatively convincingly to a point. Some didn't even engage with the conversation, which perhaps tells you a bit about um, how they, well, whether they thought they could justify it or not. Um, but definitely worth a read. And I think, you know, Ashes has pushed it all up and, and pushed it even 
more into the forefront of people's minds because a lot of people message us saying they've been going to a test match every summer for however long and this summer it's just too much and they're not going to do it uh and that's really sad that we've got to that point and um hopefully that some of the test match venues might sit up and take notice and do what they can but you know they they also make the point that everything's more expensive and the prices have to reflect that now people can judge themselves if they think that the, the prices are a fair reflection of the situation we find ourselves in. We ask for listener and readers to get in touch a lot, but there's never been a reaction like this. Nothing, nothing's really come close to this. Well, even the 100, and we got a lot on mm. the 100, and people, you know, as we know, care a lot about the 100, but this this was another level, yeah. My favourite bit, but then I would say this, is the interview on the back page with Dan Lawrence that, that Jim pulled together. Did I mention this last week? Uh... I don't know. I'm mentioning it anyway. Jim pulled it together with a matter of minutes to go before we went to print. And um, it's that nice back page where you, where you have the something that changed my life. And the first one we did was Jack Russell, the sketch that changed his life. The, then we did the run out that changed Gary Pratt's life, etc., etc. Well, this was the ground that changed Dan Lawrence's life. He grew up in a flat with his old man, with his family, literally on the ground of Chingford CC in northeast London. And he just tells the story of those formative years growing up there. Um, and there's something very, very beautiful about the way that he tells it. Uh, and it's obviously an unusual way into the game. He said he wouldn't have found it very unlikely to have found cricket if it wasn't for that location. Because exactly. it wasn't part of his school. Went to a state school that didn't play any cricket. Yeah, yeah. And he... It, he almost had so much access to the game. So they have some indoor nets at Chingford. He had so much access to it that in order to keep it interesting for him as a young lad, he, he invented new ways of playing, new shots to play. And obviously you see that with him now. And that's an ex- it's, it's an extension of his curiosity, I think, as a cricketer. You know, he's a very watchable cricketer in part because he does it his own way. And he does it his own way in part because he had limitless access to the game, you know? Um so yeah, that's a lovely little bit actually, uh, and there's you know there's there's lots of other tidy stuff within there. I'll point out as well. So Mark Ramprakash, who we had as a columnist last season, he he had a winter in hibernation. He's back on for the new season, uh, addressing the issue of dressing room culture, based on his own experiences as a as a player and as a coach, and obviously tying it in with what we've heard from the Yorkshire racism hearing over the last few weeks as well. Uh, and he's got some kind of pretty depressing stories from his own playing days he's quite honest about it all um and then we talk about you know the importance of uh, a happy positive dressing room in, in terms of the impact that has on performance and, and and we're seeing that now obviously with the with the ben stokes brendan mccullum uh he's always i think he's always an interesting read um ramps so yeah i'd i'd recommend having a look at that one too the, the county championship preview is is excellent it's as I said, 26 pages long. Uh, you've got 10 questions, 10 burning questions ahead of the new campaign. And then the, the, the regular county files bit with, with pre- previews and all that. You did your uh, Dan Mosley shuffle or Mousley shuffle? Didn't yeah, you? it's difficult. So we had... You're always going on about him. I don't think I am. Yeah, you are. I don't think I am. But it's always <laughs> difficult when you, when you have like a one to watch. Because I feel like it's cheating picking someone who, a young player who did well towards the end of last season, that makes sense. I kind of wanted to pick someone who hasn't actually played that much yet, if that makes sense. And, and you could get those terribly, horribly wrong. You went for Emilio Gay, who, which I guess, less controversial. And then, then went down less, injured. And then went down injured. Oh, really? <laughs> Just after we got a print, yeah. I did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we have an operation, it's probably um, not going to play. Oh dear. Mm. 
Um, I enjoyed, uh, as ever, the coaching section. Alex Tudor, with some excellent advice on, I guess, the physicality of being a fast bowler, how to train physically, but also what to do if you're shit scared of the ball. Indeed. Um, And on that, (laughs) another shout out, please, anybody out there beginning their nets or right in the guts of the nets, ready for pre-season, please do write in, whether you're a batter, bowler, keeper, whatever. And we will get your questions on to one of our star study panel. Have we yet read out that nice email yet? So this was a, a guy who um, emailed in with a question which we put to Wally Pope. Uh, on he was a, He's a quite a small guy and was struggling to get pace on the ball against spin. We put that to Wally Pope, who answered it in the magazine. And uh, Andy Stone replied with, Many thanks for printing my email and for the excellent advice from Ollie Pope in particular. What an honour to be coached, albeit remotely, by such a talented player. If I suddenly start making centuries this year, I'll let you know. So you could be you could be Andy Stone. You could be getting your advice from Anya Shrubsole, uh, Liam Plunkett, we've just signed up for our coaching team as well, Keaton Jennings, Mark Ramprakash, Toby Radford, Mark, Matt Parkinson, Lydia Greenway. So yeah, yeah, any query, get them in. And um, as ever, you can you can email in. You can describe what your problem is. You can uh, send in a video um, of what your issue might be uh, to editorial at wizen dot com. Uh, the the hundred draft took place uh, towards the end of last week. Did it? Yeah, it did. Um, <laughs> and we will be talking about it um, as part of our overall domestic season preview on next week's podcast. That is all for today's show. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Joe. This has been the Wizarding Cricket Weekly Podcast. We'll be back at the start of next week. Sports Social Podcast Network. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.